Happy Sabbath, everyone. Uh, we want to welcome you to church. I want to thank you for inviting me to have the opportunity to spend time with you this beautiful Sabbath day here at the Boulder SDA Sauna Church, where sweating is a spiritual act of fervor. Um, I have the wonderful privilege of opening up a new series with us, the Jesus Manifesto, and I want to spend a few moments just in a couple of the verses here in chapter one, read so beautifully uh, just a few seconds ago. Come along with me. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that springs from the hope and stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace, God, in this time that we have together. As short as it may be, I pray that you would bless us with understanding, cognitive understanding, with understanding, experiential understanding, with an understanding, Lord, that would draw us into your gospel as a community. Bless us in this time. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Let all God's people say so I think it's interesting, and I just want to hone in on a couple of words this morning, and then I'm going to let us all go. But um, as Paul is speaking, he, re he references fruit. And you see that a couple times here in, uh, in the writing here. The author references fruit, and he gives this metaphorical idea of what the gospel is like. But Colossae is a fairly wealthy city who actually... Um, was better with livestock and wool. That's kind of what they were known for. Yet Paul speaks of fruit. Why fruit? Why fruit? Well, in the biblical imagination, fruitfulness is always connected to faithfulness, while disobedience and idolatry invariably results in fruitlessness. According to Brian Walsh, he writes, might it be that when Paul, a Jew, deeply embedded in the narrative and symbolism of the Hebrew scriptures, employs a metaphor like fruit, there is a whole wealth of illusion to be unpacked. As Paul speaks of fruit to these people, there is this idea tied to cultural and historical meaning to those who are reading it. There are idiosyncrasies that the communicated understands that may not be necessarily privy to you and I because we don't live within the context and the history of these people, these oppressed people who moved, who, whose jobs were to be farmers and agrarians, who, um, whose very beginning, whose, whose mythos story was that God came into earth and fruition began. And then the very first command he gives Adam and Eve is to what? Be, you're like, I don't know, what is it, Nikki? What is it? tell me. To be fruitful and multiply. 
We hear it in the prophets as they speak to Israel about their fruitlessness. Jesus tells story after story in the gospels about fruit and the fig trees. And we recognize that in this narrative for these people, fruit is a very important thing. Turn to someone right now and say, be fruitful and multiply. Turn to somebody else and say, hey, 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 take your time, take your time. <laughs> So it is to recognize these kind of idiosyncrasies, these cultural things. And when we begin to pick up on them, it, it kind of clarifies the conversation, right? If you've ever been around somebody who is never really in on the know of the conversation or the culture, they're usually the awkward person out. Have you ever known someone like that? Or has that been you? Have you done that? When my wife and I first started dating, my wife is Filipino and I'm Tongan. Um, and so she had to kind of get to know my clan, right? Um, Tongans are very, we're, we're very conservative people. Our lifestyle is very conservative. Males and females, we don't hang out together really closely, right? So, um, and women, you kind of have a, a, like a higher status in our culture than men do. Women say amen. Amen. God bless you, men. All right. And in our culture, guess who does the cooking? The men do. We cook. We go, we get the taro leaves, we, get, we catch a, a big uh, veggie pig, and then we bring it back, right? And we do the whole umu thing, we cook it, and then, so sisters are very respected in our, in our culture. Sisters, if a sister is with her friends in the living room, the boys will go and sit outside. If the sisters are in the area of eating and they're eating, the boys will wait outside and, and they'll just wait there till the girls are done eating, then they'll come in and they'll eat. This is kind of how it works. So around your sisters, siblings, um, cousins, first cousins, and, and brothers and sisters, um, we don't show any kind of public display of affection. If you're ever around a Tongan family, you'll notice. Tongans, we don't, you know, when we come into church, the women will sit a pew in front and the men will sit a little bit behind them. We don't hold hands, we don't do the lovey-dovey, I love you kind of stuff. So could you imagine what that must have felt like to my wife who was born in Vancouver and grew up in Southern California where people always showed a, a, a public display of affection. When we were dating, she'd want to hold my hand. But she wouldn't say, hey, hold my hand. She'd, she'd reach for it like this, right? And I'd always hold her hand when my family wasn't around. But when my family was around and she tried to hold my hand, I'd move away. She'd try to hug me when she leaves, you know, she'd reach for me and be like, hey, 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 calm down. Slow your roll, sister, you know. Could you imagine how bewildered she was because she didn't understand the context? One day she sits me down, she says, hey, do you want to be with me or not? I mean, he said, yeah, man, I love you, girl. I, I want to marry you, you're the best. And she's like, well, are you embarrassed of me? I said, no, you're the best. She's like, so you love me and you care for me and you're not embarrassed, yes. And she says, so why won't you hold my hand around your family? Oh, let me give you context. Context is important because it speaks to things we don't necessarily see up front. Last week, I was at Phil's Coffee. Anybody ever had Phil's Coffee, anyone? You don't have Phil's up here, right? Man, see, I knew Boulder was imperfect. 
Phil's Coffee is this, is this place, and forgive me if you're not a coffee drinker. Um, if you are, come along. If you're not, pretend I'm talking about Postum. So I'm at Phil's Coffee, and I'm standing there in line, and they got this thing that I always order. It's called a mint mojito, right? It's not non-alcoholic people. Um, and I order it, and I'm standing there in line, and as I'm standing there, it's the middle of Glendale, you know, just a bunch of random strangers. A guy walks in, and as he walks in, he looks awfully familiar to me, like I should know him, I should know who he is. But I can't recall where I know him from. So I'm staring at him, and I'm trying not to be like a weird stalker guy, but I'm kind of looking at him, and I'm trying to catch eye, you know, eye contact, and he's not looking at me, but I want to get eye contact, because, you know, if you know someone, you're like, hey, and they're like, hey. And as uh, pastors go, we know nobody's name. We can't remember names for the life of us. You know, most of us, hey, bro, hey, sis, hey, good to see you again. You, full of life, right? So I'm trying to catch his eye, and he's not looking at me. And so I walk up next to him, and he's in his own personal bubble space, and I'm just like, I know I know you, and I'm pretty sure you're Adventist, but how do I approach this? So I said this, <clears throat> haystacks. And I looked away, and I looked at him to see if he reacted. Because, you know, only Adventists know what haystacks is. So I figured if he looked at me, hey, and if he didn't, then no harm, right? And so I said, haystacks. And he looks at me, and he's like, uh, excuse me? I said, oh, nothing, nothing. I'm just waiting for my coffee, haystacks. <laughs> and he starts to chuckle. He's like, I love haystacks. And I was like, I know you. You're an Adventist. So we start going back in our history to find out how we knew each other. And he was in school when I was, I was already working. And, you know, so we had this kind of like offshoot relationship. But recognizing that this is something, when it's said, it triggers us with memories, with context, with life. And Paul triggers his readers by talking about fruit. And so he begins to talk about this fruit, and they begin to hone in on his words as he tells them about the gospel. When they speak of fruit, it evokes a covenantal shalom that permeates all of life. When they hear fruit, it brings this covenantal shalom, this fruitfulness of our bodies, of our livestock, of our soil, of our neighbors, of our foreigners, of all those around, those who are infringed and those who are oppressed. It speaks to the year of Jubilee. So when the word fruit comes forward, there is this, there is this nostalgic, hey, we are to live a life that creates life for others. Let the church say amen. This is one of the things that I love about Adventism, and it's one of the things that I struggle with Adventism, because we've got a lot of things that speaks life into people, but then we sell it to them as if it's more condemning than it is. The idea of being vegetarian, that's to be celebrated. Somebody say amen? Right. Then the rest of you are like, no. But to eat healthy and to live long is something we all want, amen? 
To live in this earth and to have a healthy life and to be able to say, hey, we want you to live lifelong too and live a prosperous and good life. That's powerful. But we have in our history said, hey, you need to be a vegetarian. And if God really loves you and you want God's favor, you need to be what? Vegan. Vegans. I'm looking at you, vegans. I'm judging you. My associate, my former associate pastor, he became a vegan. You know, and I said, bro, why are you vegan? He's like, it's because I want to feel more righteous than you, Icky. <laughs> it's interesting how the vegan lifestyle has caught on and it's on fire in our culture and our society. And we should have been the ones to start that flame, amen? But we were too busy condemning people and being angry about it and being hateful that people didn't want to become that. Then whole life, then a Whole Foods opens and Trader Joe's and and veggie grill and all these people are, are uh, eating all vegan and vegetarian now and all of a sudden people are like, hey, this is a great idea. Duh, we've been saying that. But if one day we find out that being vegetarian is unhealthy and actually shortens life, we should condemn vegetarianism, amen? We should say, hey, everybody stop being vegetarian. Why? Because it's shortening our lives. Let's all eat some steak and the churches say amen because that is life-giving. We don't hold on to doctrines because they are doctrines. We hold on to doctrines because they are life-giving and life-affirming. If it's not life-giving and life-affirming, then I dare say it's not the gospel. We've got to be life-giving and life-affirming. Too many of us get caught up on that whole vegetarian thing and I don't need meat because I love the Lord. Give me three more cheesecakes, please. God bless you. I don't know why I've got diabetes and high cholesterol. I'm a vegetarian. The Sabbath. What a beautiful gospel to share with people. Amen? This idea that all week long, you and I have to work for our place in this world and our title and our value and our validation and our worth, but on the Sabbath, you and I can stop and tell the world no longer. My validation and my value and my identity is not in my job or my title or how much money I make. It is in the fact that I am a child of God. I did not earn salvation. It was given to me by him freely. Praise God. And that's why we share a Sabbath, a powerful thing. It's deep and it's beautiful and it's profound. And we should invite the rest of the world, hey, just stop. Stop running after uh, uh, each other. Stop uh, acting crazy. Stop with the competition. And on this day, let's celebrate life. It's a good thing. We've kept Sabbath kind of a thing that's like, uh, that's like you have to do this because this is what we've always done. And if you don't do it, the Lord is unhappy with you. <laughs> we've lost the principle of life-giving Sabbath and we've become those people that are watching each other. What are you doing on Sabbath? What are you doing on Sabbath? And so because we've lost the principle, we have a difficult time pivoting in the society. My mother-in-law, I grew up in a time, I don't know if you grew up in this kind of generation where on the Sabbath you didn't watch TV. Did anybody do that? Did you kind of have that, right? So now, I grew up in a house where uh, my, my grandfather was an old school pastor, my mom's old school, so like they would cook food on Friday noon, and then we just eat it cold on Sabbath. What a horrible way to experience Sabbath. 
And then you couldn't watch TV on Sabbath, you know? And so my, my wife is like that. Her mother, her mom is like that. My mother-in-law, very, hey, we don't watch Sabbath. We don't do it. And I said, mom, why don't you watch TV on Sabbath? She's like, because we just don't do that. It's of the Lord that we don't do it. And I'm like, well, mom, how come you let my kids get on your phone all the time and watch things? You know what those are? She's like, what? Those are little TVs. <laughs> Blew her mind. What? It's too late. My mother-in-law's addicted to watching the smartphone. So like, she can't stop, right? We haven't learned how to pivot. It's not about watching TV or not watching TV or all this stuff. It's about community. Sabbath is supposed to be life-giving. It's supposed to breathe refreshing newness into our lives. It's supposed to create community. It's supposed to create connectivity. We're supposed to be able to gather around it and it's supposed to birth new hope. It's a reminder that our validation comes from our identity found in Jesus, not in our jobs, not in our money, not in our finances, not in our titles. It comes from Christ. And so it reminds us as Adventists that we've got to be able to speak life into this world. Our job is to be fruitful. It is supposed to bring goodness. It is supposed to bring a covenant of shalom to the people we're around. When people are around Adventist people, they're supposed to feel like, whoa, man, those people are life-giving people. They, they are exciting to be around. We need to speak up against racism. We need to speak up against misogyny. We need to speak up against ultra-patriotism. We need to speak up against segregation. And we need to speak up against exclusivity. This is something the church must do because this is what Jesus does. Somebody say amen. amen. Jesus never left the socially marginalized at the corners and the edges of the world. He always brought them to the center of the community. We are supposed to stand up for those who are especially, especially vulnerable in our world. And there are people that are struggling through that. And the church must be very clear about our stance. Yes, it's, it's good. We love America. Yes, I love, I became a citizen a couple years ago. I want you to know how proud of that moment I was. I came into this big room, and it's just an intimate me and 4,000 other friends of mine. We had these little flags, and you did not know how exciting it was going to be until, like, we started singing the national anthem, and it was like, this is, <laughs> why am I crying? I looked next to me, and there's a Pakistani guy, and he's crying, and all of a sudden, I'm hugging this stranger. We're Americans. Yeah, I love this place. My love for America should never trump my love for Jesus. Following my nationalism should never trump following the cross. And we must speak to that, my friends. That's what it means to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. Covenantal shalom that brings goodness to our widows and our orphans and our foreigners to speak forward about the marginalized, to love on those who are unloved, to visit the imprisoned, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick. This is what the church does. So, perhaps, just perhaps, this language of fruitfulness goes all the way back to the beginning story where creation is invited to be fruitful and multiply. And maybe it reminds these Colossians that in a world where there is so much uh, uh, 
consumerism and bartering and changing of hands and this kind of, of movement that there is a gospel that breeds new life and fruitfulness to the world it belongs to. And so it begins to speak up and it begins to speak loudly to the needs of the people. This isn't the place, obviously, to engage ecological issues. But this is the place for us to speak about the gospel that proclaimed should bring life. The creative word that calls forth a world and a people of fruitfulness is spoken anew in the gospel, and lo and behold, it bears fruit. The fruit of a new humanity who themselves bear a good fruit work in every dimension of life. Every nook, cranny of our culture, uh, the gospel should bear good fruit. And I want you to begin to consider, what does that look like here in Boulder? What does that look like here in this church? What ways are we going to begin to speak life into our city, into our communities? Not just for each other. Let us not just have church just so that we can feel like we've had church. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? I mean, is it really that exciting if I come to church and I'm, you know, like, no, let's have a church that speaks of how it will engage the community and the city it is a part of, how we will partner with the things happening here to bring life. Otherwise, salvation for us is communal narcissism, where we speak to ourselves for ourselves. And as we do that, I fear that we become those who bury their talents. And one day the master comes by and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? Your fruitfulness, your faithfulness. And we say, well, we, we hung out with each other. We did it right on Sabbath. We came dressed up and no matter how much drama was at home, we pretended like we were happy at church. And we did it faithfully every Sabbath for two hours and no longer because we eat. We gave you your time, Jesus. Jesus wants us to proclaim a life-giving, life-engaging gospel to the world around us. What is happening down the street with that family who has three Teslas? What is happening to that college student who's struggling through suicide and depression? What is happening to some of our low-income families, maybe to that divorced young mom who's struggling to take care of her kids. When was the last time we asked ourselves these things? Have we taken time as a church to ask those things? And I speak generally, not just you all, but all of us, all of us. The gospel should bring life. This is the litmus test of the church's work in the world. Are your words and actions bringing life to those in our community? The litmus test for the church is not whether our membership is up and whether we have enough tithes. Somebody say amen. amen. And nothing wrong with tithe, man. Please pay your tithe because that helps us pastors. I always tell my church, I say, listen, I, you know how I am. I, I, I don't want us to think about tithe or membership, but I want you to think about tithe. Amen. Amen. Right. This should not be the litmus test of whether a church is actually functioning uh, successfully the way, the way they should be. The way uh, that we should have for testing a church, whether it is doing what it's supposed to be, is whether it is engaging the community it is a part of and bringing life to them. This is what we are about. To engage, to live, to love, and action.
And so Paul speaks of this, and he ties it down in his verse 9, where he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, you have not stopped. We've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He speaks this way because the church was struggling with Gnosticism in this time of, 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 the, uh, of the world. And so this idea that there's a secret knowledge they could know and that would somehow grant them divinity, right? And so they were dealing with this Gnosticism. And so you'll see Paul as one of his, one of his themes speak of knowledge and the importance of what that knowledge looks like. And so uh, after he's talking about fruit, he moves to this, to this hey, this is what knowledge is this here we'll continually ask God to fill you with knowledge nosco of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives I think that's important for Adventists because as Adventists we are uniquely a cognitive kind of church we like to know what we believe and we like to know things we're not our sentimentality is really low as Adventists we can be really honest with each other our sentimentality is horrible Right? We have to tell you to stand up every time we do praise. That's how bad we are. Can you please stand for praise? Oh, yeah, I guess it's time to stand. It's awkward. And if you've ever gone to church with somebody who's non-Adventist and they have a high sentimentality from their faith tradition, it's like a little awkward, right? Because they're like praising and they're sweating and they're doing like cartwheels and, you know, and you're like, oh, 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 mercy. Oh, I don't know what kind of spirit that is. It's too much. Adventists, we're not like that. Let me be honest. We're not like that. Adventists, we like to know little details. We're like the weird cousin that has like weird information that we know, right? You want to know what's in the middle of the earth? <laughs> right? That's us. We like that kind of stuff. We like to know when is the right day to worship, what's the right food to eat, what's the right clothes to do, when is Jesus coming back, exactly when Jesus is coming back. We like to know these little things as if we know something special. And so um, in, in, a, in a varied sense, this kind of Gnosticism draws us in, this secret knowledge. We want to have, have this. We want to monopolize this kind of truth. And so we get caught up in the oidos of things, this cognitive experience. So when we want to baptize someone, we give them 13 studies on 28 fundamental beliefs that maybe one day will be 29 and 30 and 50 and 1,000. Could you imagine when we get to 150 and we've got to give Bible studies for baptism? Those people will never get baptized. They've got to know it. They've got to know it. The eunuch would have never made it. The Ethiopian eunuch. Ooh, that's a beautiful thing to think of. A Ethiopian eunuch who got baptized. Let the church say amen. I hope you know what you just said amen to. Would have never made it. We're cognitive in our sense. We like the, the, the Greek term for that is oidos, right? To have a, to have a knowledge-based understanding of something. Many of us want to have a complete empirical amount of information for us to take in before we can translate that into something sentimental or beautiful or feeling-based. But there's another word in the Greek called gnosko, and this word is also means to know, but it means to know in the sense of experiencing that thing. Now, you can know about something, and you can know about something, amen? My wife and I, when we were having our first child, Michaela, I read all the books I could on it, because I wanted to be well prepared. I read up on articles, people who are giving little talks 
on like how to prepare for that Labor Day moment. And it was like, when your wife goes to have the first child in labor, it will be a beautiful experience. There will be tears of joy and there will be a lot of, of endorphins pumping from this beautiful moment. Enjoy it together. That is the oidos I took into the labor room when my wife wanted to punch me in the face. <laughs> the, the, the gnosko, the experience of that told me something completely different from the oidos of that, right? And so there are times when we are cognitive, but it is important to know that knowing about something and experiencing that thing is very different. You can know about something, but until you've experienced that thing, you don't really know what it's like. I used to look at parents like they were crazy, man. When I see parents, and they, and they, you know, before we had kids, and I see parents coming into restaurants, and their kids were acting crazy, I used to be like, hmm, those are some horrible parents. Ooh, somebody needs to, somebody needs to get on those parents for being bad parents. Look at how they, when I have kids, they're going to sit straight. They're going to do everything I tell them. They're never going to drop food on the ground. Because, you know, when you go to restaurants and a family, you know when a family has sat there. Because the majority of food is on the ground, right? No, never in my family. And then I had kids and it was like, I am so sorry to every parent I ever judged. Because I thought I knew. I thought I had a comprehensive like, idea, understanding of what it means to be a parent. And then I had children and I realized nothing stops children. They are like the virus that continues to live. My daughter came home. My daughter's first year of school was last year, kindergarten. She comes home, first week, four days in Adventist education, four days. She comes to me at the end of those first four days, she says, Dad. I said, yeah. She's like, I like a boy. <laughs> what? She's like, yeah, I like him. Nobody told me that little girls actually like boys that early in life. I was expecting to have this conversation 10 years down the road, right? When she's coming, a teenager, dad, I'm she, kindergarten, four days, Adventist education, you failed me. <laughs> I wanted to pull her out in homeschool, but I, I'm not smart enough. Like, my kids would be horrible human beings if they came for homeschool from me, right? Nobody tells you about these kinds of things. There's an oidos, there is a cognitive grasping of facts and information. And then there's the experience of that very thing. You don't have to have a full cognitive empirical grasp of something to be able to experience the greatness of that very thing. Um, I went skydiving. My first time I went skydiving was in 2006. And uh, when, I was, when I came to the people and they said, yeah, okay, my brother wanted to come along. And they, so I said, yeah, okay, I can go. And then they're like, well, there's a weight limit, you know? And they said, so how much do you weigh? And he's like, yeah, I weigh about 310 pounds. And they're like, sir, no, we can't do it. The plane will crash and everyone will die. He's like, that's messed up. He walks outside. And I get outside and they, they pair you with people that you're supposed to jump out the plane with. And um, they pair everyone. And the last person left was me because I was the largest in that group of people. And the one guy who was left there was a, just a really thin guy. I mean, he was like this thin right here. Let me tell you <laughs> how thin my man was right here. Right? 
And I'm looking at him and I'm like, bro, I don't want this guy. And the lady's like, no, no, you, you want him. He's good. I said, no, look at him. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, if I'm going to jump out of a plane, I want someone the size of my brother. Because if the chute doesn't open, I want to be able to fall on him and live. You see what I'm saying? This guy, everyone's dying. If the, you know, We get on the plane, and it's going up, and he's locked up to me in the back. And he says, this is exciting. Yeah. This is going to be great. Are you happy? And I was like, you know what? No, I changed my mind. I tell you what I'm going to do. I said, I've got a plan. He says, excellent. Plans are great. And I said, this is what we're going to do. When we get up to elevation and they open the door, it's flooding in. Let everyone go. Yeah, excellent. We'll be the last one. I said, no, then we'll shut the door. We'll go back down. And he says, Mr. Tiny, no, no. You've got to do this. It's a guy. Listen, bro, I ain't got to do anything you want me to do. I'm three times your size. If I sit here, you can't get up. We're going to ride this plane back down, bro. He says, no, no, you've got to trust me. No, I don't. I don't know who you are. I can't even remember your name right now. I'm, well, I don't trust you. He's like, he's like, no, trust me. And then he says this. You remember when you came in and you guys were signing all those papers and there was a ton of awards everywhere on the wall? I said, yeah. He says, all those awards belong to me. He's like, I'm the best jumper here. I'm the most experienced. I've got all kinds of awards. The reason they put you with me is because you're large and I, I'm the best. And I said, are you calling me fat? He said, no. You're big boned. He says, trust me. He says, look, I don't want to die. And I said, I don't care. I don't want to die. I don't care if you want to die or not. You can jump and die. I don't know. He's like, no, no. I don't want to die. And if I'm connected to you and you're with me and I don't want to die and I'm the best and I don't die, you don't die. Oh, snap. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. So we get to the door, open up. You know, he says, okay, now we're going to try something different, Mr. Timey. Jumping out of a plane is different for me. I, this is pretty, he's like, no, we're going to jump out backwards and do some somersaults. Right, exactly. Do I empirically, cognitively know that my parachute is going to open and I'm going to land? No. I wish I did. I wish I could tell you, you know, it, but, but would I, if I knew empirically that I would jump out of this plane and land on the ground, no problem, would I lose some sense of excitement from that moment? Yes. A great portion of the experience is not in the knowledge, in the, in, in the, in the concept, and, and being to be able to empirically weigh it out, but to jump. And there is a sense of freedom and power and goodness and this rush of energy that happens when you are experiencing that moment. And in the gospel, as a church, sometimes we weigh out the cognitive, conceptual, doctrine ideas for too long that we are too late to moving out into the experience of life-giving engagement with the community. Jesus calls us to jump. He says, you are connected to me, and if I'm the author of life, then when you are connected to me, you too will have life. Church, we should be an engaging body that speaks life to the world. We should be giving experiences to people where they say, wow, this was worth it. The fruit is good. 
These people, they've got a deep, profound love for the world, for the ecology, for the human beings. And even though I'm not a believer, I can buy into this. And as they begin to walk after this, they will find Jesus has been calling them all along. Jesus has been calling them all along. The author of Colossians says that the gospel has moved to them. The gospel, verse 6, that has come to you. This gospel approaches us. And so Gnosticism is taken on. And we are called not to be a people of special knowledge, secret understandings, conspiracy theories, living in the, in the very abstract cosmic ideas. We were called to be a church that is a part of praxis of life and engaging with the world. Kind of close. I'm kind of hungry. Is anybody else hungry? <laughs> amen, amen. I got a, a guy who goes to our church. His name's Joe. He's bald because that's of the Lord, Brigitte, okay? Bald men are righteous men. He's got tats all over his body. I met him on a basketball court in LA. We love to play a lot of basketball. And so we were at the park together. And people would just hang out together at the park. My brother's a great person who connects relationships with human beings. And my brother, Roel, he would always say, hey, bro, why don't you come to church with us? And he's like, no, nah, I don't go to church. That's not my thing. I've really, I don't, uh, no. So one day, they're talking, and we've been playing basketball for a while, creating relationships, and Roel says, hey, you know my brother's a pastor? And he looks at me and he goes, what? I would have never known. I was slightly offended. Slightly complimented. He's like, no, I mean, I just, you know, we're always just hanging out. Da, da, da. And Roll says to him, he says, hey, why don't you come to our church this weekend? He says, I don't know. My brother says, well, you know, um, we're having a barbecue. He's like, okay, I'll be there. Because my brother knows how to make some good steak. Not veggie steak, steak. My man comes to church. He's hanging on outside. And he's being a part of it, but from a distance. And... We start eating some steak together. Not me, I'm vegetarian, but he's eating steak and I'm staring at him, kind of disgusted by the dead meat on his plate. And we're talking. And he's beginning to experience what it means to be part of a community. And afterwards he says, bro, I've been into Wicca. He's like, most of my life I've been atheist agnostic. He's like, I don't get church people. But something here is different. From that day forward, that Sabbath, Joe never missed the Sabbath again. He got connected, started becoming partnerships with our church in the city. He married an Adventist girl. They have Adventist babies. And they live a Adventist-centric life that doesn't exist in the cosmic abstract, in a cognitive world or conceptually, but that is lived 
with praxis every day? Experiencing God, doubting God, trusting him, falling out of love, falling back in love. That's what it means to be a church. Too often we've, we've said to each other, no, my faith is good. No, I trust the Lord. And it's okay when our faith fails us. Somebody say amen. It's okay to engage God like that because God is big enough to handle our doubts. God is big enough to, answer, uh, to, to handle our, our unanswered questions. That is the part of the journey. I tell my friend Joe's story not to celebrate the moment he finally understood Jesus had been chasing him, but to celebrate his journey. To celebrate those moments of agnosticism and atheism. To celebrate the moments when, when he was walking through Wicca. To celebrate the moments when he felt completely judged by the world around. Every single moment of his journey matters to Jesus. Too often we've discounted people because of that. We've discounted each other because of, you just need to pray more. Your problem is that you don't have enough faith. Let us stop that kind of talking and speak life and love into each other. Let us celebrate people in their journeys, regardless of where they are. Whether they're doubting or they're in the tops with victory, mountaintops with Jesus. Whether they're not sure about the doctrines or, or, or they know everyone by heart. It is our moment to speak fruitfulness, this covenantal shalom into the life of our members and into the life of the world that we live in. May our church not settle to be just cognitive people who hang out in a club, exclusive to us. Maybe we go out into this world and engage without full clarity, without full understanding, without knowing the end from the beginning and trusting that the one we follow, he, he knows the end from the beginning to trust and celebrate the lives of those around, to protect those who are most vulnerable, to watch after those who are oppressed, to care for the dying and the sick. And this is what it means to be church. God, take us from this place more fruitful, speaking this covenantal shalom into the world. God, we've got individuals and family and members here who've come today wearing our best but feeling our worst, who are struggling at home with finances, who are struggling at home with their marriages, who are struggling at home with maybe their kids or their parents. We have others who've come into this space, Lord, who doesn't even know if you hear anything they say, who aren't sure if you exist in this plane of reality or any plane. We have some, Lord, who've been here today who come from, from a long tradition of faith communities and who are burned out, who are tired. And I pray that you would speak that shalom into us today that life-bearing, life-giving, life-goodness draw us together as a community, help us celebrate each other's story to support and to love. Jesus, may we not be just settled on our knowledge, 
but may we leap forward into an adventure where you, the author of life, is connected to us, to Gnosko.